For the last several weeks now, we've been in the book of Hebrews, and I'm not sure what your feelings have been toward this study. I think it's been a help to me, and I know it's been a help to uh, my understanding of things. I hope it's been a help to your understanding of things as well. Just want to remind us real quickly of what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks so that we're up to speed on things, and uh, hopefully have a better grasp of what's being talked about tonight. But you'll remember that the writer of Hebrews decided to use the people of Israel as an illustration of what happened to them as they left their uh, time in Egypt to head toward that promised land. He said they failed to enter into their land of rest because of unbelief. And because of that, he said in the opening verse of what we call chapter 4, he said, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left of us, uh, lest left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. And what we talked about is how... It's going to happen. It's not an if, it's not a maybe, it's not a I wonder, what do you think? It's going to happen that there are going to be people who have known of God, who have known the goodness of God, who have known the blessings of God, and yet they never, with all of their awareness of who God is, they have never mixed that knowledge with true saving faith. And there are going to be men and women who have attended church, who have been involved in ministry, who have engaged in religious activity, who can answer so many Bible questions, they're going to fall short. And they're not going to enter into that land of rest that they could have. And uh, last week we watched as the writer continued to talk about that eternal permanent land of rest and what uh, is available to the child of God, and it's an, it's an encouraging truth if you think about it, to think that one day the trials of this life will be over, one day the burdens of this life will be over. And uh, that was in verse number 9. Then in verse number 10, he said, For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did uh, from his. And uh, so it's encouraging to know that the child of God who has already passed from this life, he has already entered into that place of rest, and she has, and Uh, They don't have to worry about the affairs of this life anymore, and they don't have to deal or worry themselves uh, with just the concerns of of everyday stuff, and and that's something that we can look forward to if we're a child of God. But tonight we're going to move on, and we're going to look at a couple of verses that I'm sure are familiar to uh, many of us, at least one of the verses is familiar to many of us. Before we do, I'm going to ask you to do something with me, and uh, I want to ask you to use your imagination, that's something I ask you to do on somewhat of a regular basis, I guess. As we do so, I want us to understand I'm not trying to be inappropriate tonight, okay? I have no desire, I have no intentions to be inappropriate. I don't know what else to do other than present to you what I believe the Lord has laid on my heart. But I want you to imagine tonight that for just a moment we all took a piece of paper and we wrote our name down on that piece of paper. After we wrote our name down on that piece of paper, we stuck that piece of paper inside a hat. And I said to you, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to draw three names out of the hat. And you said, okay, it sounds fine. And I said, are you willing to go along with whatever it is we're about to do? And you said, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm game for this, sure, whatever it is. How bad can it be? So here's what I say is about to happen. We're going to draw three names out of the hat. And whoever's name is drawn, you have to come to the front of the church and you have to strip naked. 
All we're going to do is give careful consideration to you. This is what you look like. This is what we really are. You can't suck it in forever. I didn't assume this would be cute, but maybe it is. I don't know about you, but that's not a game I want to participate in. Only a fool would want to participate in a game like that. Because if we're honest, here's what we know. That would be so humiliating. That would be so degrading. You'd either have to be a fool or one of the most arrogant people you could ever meet. I mean, really, that, that's what it'd have to be. There's not enough money represented in this church to make me play that game. There, there is nothing about such a thought that would make me want to do that. Because here's what I know. I know every fault and flaw that I have. And I don't want every physical fault and flaw that I have revealed to everyone. I want to conceal it. I want to hide it. I wouldn't dare want me to be open to the complete, honest, scrutiny of you related to me standing before you naked. And again, you're either a fool or arrogant. If you would say, oh, sounds good to me, sure, no problem. Now, why mention that? Seems like an odd introduction. Well, this morning, or this evening rather, Remember the very first message out of the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is God. Over and over and over, the writer of Hebrews declares, Jesus Christ is God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a miracle worker. No, Jesus Christ is God. The two are one. The two are equal. Though they are separate, they work in perfect harmony. They're identical. Their functions are different, but their nature is identical. When you see one, you have seen the other. When you hear one, you have heard the other. When you behold one, you have beheld the other. How do we know? Well, turn tonight, if you would, to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verse number 44, we have Jesus speaking. It says, Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. What does that mean? It means this. 
Christ said of himself, if you believe on me, it's not me necessarily that you're believing on, but you're believing on the one who has sent me. That would be a reference to God or God the Father, correct? Because Christ understood better than anyone, he and I are one. My Father and I are one, Christ would say. So he says, if you've believed on me, you've not really believed on me as much as you have believed on him that sent me. And in verse number 45 he says, And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. So Christ says, If you have beheld me with your eyes, which obviously the audience that he is speaking to had beheld him with their eyes, he said, If you have seen me, then I want you to understand, you've seen the one who has sent me, you have seen God, because you were able to see me. So Christ says, if you've believed on me, then it's not me as much as it is him who sent me. And if you see me, then you see the one who sent me. He says in verse number 46, I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide or live or dwell in darkness. If you've believed on me, which means you have believed on the one who sent me, which would be God, then I want you to understand something. Because of that, you do not and you should not dwell or abide or live in darkness. Uh, you should not be living like you once lived as a result of your salvation, if you have believed in me. He says in verse number 47, and if any man hear my words and believeth not, I judge him not. That's not what we're used to hearing from the words of Christ, right? Or from the mouth of Christ. But it's interesting what he says. He says, if a man or a woman should hear my words, but choose not to believe it, you know, someone hears what I have to say about, you know, sin or righteousness or godliness or priorities or, or following the Lord, taking up the cross, whatever it may be. If, if I speak these words and somebody chooses for whatever reasons to believe it not, he said, I just want you to know I don't judge you. I'm not here to judge you. Because in verse number 47 he says, For I came not to judge the world but to save the world. Christ understood his purpose for coming to this earth. It was not at that moment to condemn the world. His purpose in coming to the earth was to live on this world, or to live on this earth, to eventually die on the cross for the sins of man, be risen again, and then to ascend into heaven. That is why he came. And so oddly enough, words that we don't remember or dwell upon very often, Christ said, you know what, if somebody chooses not to believe me, hey, I don't judge him. That's not why I came. But notice what he says in verse number 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. Christ did not say, if you reject me, you won't be judged. He just said, that's not what I've come to do right now. But he says in verse number 48, if you have rejected me and you have not received my words, then understand something. There is one that will judge you. What would that be? He says the word 
that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Many, many, many years ago, I preached this passage on a Sunday night as we made our way through the book of John in the first Sunday night series that I did here. And I remember preaching this message, and, and, and I didn't go back and consult it for this evening's message, but I, I, I remember it so clearly and I remember it so vividly because it, vividly because it was something that uh, got my attention. I never really thought about this before. But you know what Christ declared in verse number 48? He said, it will not be me that judges you, but I'll tell you what it will be that judges you. And that's the word. The word I've spoken. See, he says to these Jews that he's speaking to, he is saying to them, I I want you to understand something. There's coming a day you will be judged. I'm not judging you right now. If you choose to reject me, if you choose not to believe me, if you choose not to accept what I've had to say, that's your choice. I didn't come to judge. I've come to save. But you will be judged one day. And you know what you'll be judged according to? My word. And that last day, you will stand and give an account for your life in comparison to my word. The standard will not be culture. The standard will not be your family upbringing. Your standard will not be your views, your feelings, your opinions, your thoughts, your ideas. No, there is going to be one standard and only one standard. And what you will be judged by will be the words I have spoken. The word of God. Because, see, if, if you've seen me, you've seen him that sent me. If you believe on me, then you've believed on the one that sent me. And it's fair to say that if you have heard me, you have heard the ones, the words of the one who sent me. Christ makes it clear to the Jews he was speaking to. The word of God will judge you. Period. See, Christ wasn't even opening the conversation up for debate or conversation or dialogue. He wasn't asking anyone that day, so what do you think about this? How does this make you feel? Do you like what you've heard today? Christ wasn't worried about it. You will be judged according to the words I have spoken. Why? Because, again, Christ understood better than anyone that he and God were the same. He and God were one. He says in verse number 49, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Christ says, I just want you to know, I've been obedient to speak exactly what my Father has commanded me to speak. So we understand what Christ said. In the last day, you will be judged according to the word 
because the word is the standard and the word is the authority. Now this evening I want to bring something to our attention that I'm sure you know, but maybe you haven't thought about it, and that is this. Nowhere in the New Testament will you find an amendment made to the statements of Christ. At no point is the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or James or John or anyone else going to come along and say, now listen, we'd like to amend what Christ said, and we'd like to tweak that just a little bit, and, and we'd like for you to understand that what Christ said isn't really what Christ meant, and, and Christ got excited in the moment, and Christ, you know, he, he got caught up in, in the atmosphere that day, and he said some things he didn't mean. No, listen, we're not going to read that in the Scripture. So what does that mean? It means this, what Christ said he meant and nothing has changed it since. So you fast forward now to Hebrews chapter 4. Who is Christ? Christ is God what we've said repeatedly, correct? So verse number 12, here's this familiar portion of Scripture to us, and, and it's one that's quoted many times, and many times as a standalone verse and is able to do so, but the context of it is really amazing because you've got to remember here's a Jew writing to other Jews who has struggled with, who is Christ? Is he really everything that, that he and others have said he is? I mean, really, who is Christ? And, and, and the writer said, we need to take earnest heed to what he has said, and we need to give serious attention to all this. And so now in verse number 12, 12, he says, for the word of God. Or the word of whom? The word of Christ. Because Christ is God and God is Christ, separate yet one, correct? Okay, so the word of God, the words of God. You know, Christ was speaking about his own personal authority that he had. You know, what I have said to you, these aren't my words. I'm just giving you what my Father, the one who has sent me, has commended, commanded me to say unto you. And so Christ was talking about the spoken word of God. Here the writer, I believe, is talking about not only the spoken word of God, but the written word of God. But notice what he says of the word of God. He says, the word of God is quick. It's quick. What does that mean for the word of God to be quick? It means it's alive. The word of God is not dead. This word of God is not obsolete. This word of God is not archaic. The word of God is still alive. The Word of God still applies. Oh yeah, but, but, but Brother Kyle, this is the 21st century. Who cares what century it's in? The Word of God is still alive for today and the world that we're living in. Well, Brother Kyle, we live in a different age. We live in just a different culture. We live in different mindsets. I mean, you know, there are just so many thoughts and so many opinions. And, and you know, I, I'm not sure that the Scripture really speaks to this issue or that issue or whatever it may be. Listen, only an unbeliever or a doubter would suggest the Word of God is not still quick or alive in today's society. 
He says the word of God is quick and powerful. What does it mean for the word of God to be powerful? It means this. It means to be effective and decisive. And he says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. How many of us have ever tried to cut something with a dull knife or a dull razor? It's quite frustrating, isn't it? You can sit there and gnaw at it almost all day long and just cut and cut and cut and cut. And here's what you know. It ain't quick. It's not quick. It's not decisive. I mean, it's not something that that slices right to it and gets the job done. But have you ever cut something with a freshly sharpened blade? You better watch out. Because that blade, that, that edge is going to cut. It's going to cut quickly. It's going to cut decisively. And it will cut mercilessly. So here is the writer, and he says, once you understand something, the Word of God is quick, it is alive, it is powerful, it is effective, it is decisive, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And here is what it does. It pierces, he says, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It's kind of like this. You know what the Word of God does? The Word of God just cuts right through it and gets right to the soul and right to the spirit of things. The Word of God doesn't just kind of gnaw on the individual and say, well, I mean, let's kind of get to this if we can. I mean, let's work on this and see if we can get to it. No, that's not how the Word of God works. The Word of God is alive and the Word of God is effective and it is decisive, it is sharp. And here's what it does. It pierces to the soul and the spirit and it just divides it and it just lays it wide open. Here it is. Take a sharp knife. Put it into the flesh of that fish. And it's wide open. Take that sharp knife. Put it into that deer. Take that sharp knife. Put it into any animal that you want. And here's what you know. If you've got it sharpened right, it will be quick and it will be effective and it will be decisive. And it will just go right into where it needs to go. It will just lay it wide open. It will divide it. And here's what it's going to be. It's going to be open. It's going to be exposed. And he says it divides the soul and the spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know what he says the Word of God does? The Word of God just gets to the point. Here's your soul, here's your spirit, here's your inner man. <laughs> We're not going to play with this we're not going to sidestep this we're not going to try to get to this no here's what the word of god does the word of god just gets right to the point just here we are we've got the soul and the spirit laid out it's just laid out it's divided it's it's cut through the joints it's cut through the marrow and it discerns the thoughts and the intents or the motives of the heart. 
How much so? Well, notice in verse number 13. Neither is there not any creature that is not manifest in his sight. If any man be born again, behold, he is a new creature. Right? So if any man be born again, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are come new. That kind of puts us in the category of creature. Following this? Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. What does it mean for something to be manifest? It means this, to be on display, that which is clear or that which is on ex- exhibition or, or such, or, or one that is on show, so to speak. No creature is not manifest in whose sight? In God's sight. In God's sight, every creature, that be you and I, The Jew writing to fellow Jews, he would say, that would be you. He said, you need to understand something, that in God's eyes, you're on display. You're like an exhibit. You're on show. You're like on the platform for the scrutiny of who? of God. How much so? Notice what he said next. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What does that mean whenever he says of him whom we have to do? Well, it's suggested that the statement is implying this, of the one that we will one day stand before. Kind of like what John or Jesus was talking about back in the book of John, you know, in the last day when you will stand and be judged according to what? The word of God. So here's the writer writing to fellow Jews, and he reminds them, though the terminology is different, he says, Jews, you need to understand something. One day we're going to stand before God. One day we're, we're going to be open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Okay, one day we're going to stand before God. And, and Jews, you need to understand something. We're going to be on display before God. And here's how on display we will be before God. We will stand before him naked. Not physically naked, but we will stand before him spiritually naked. We won't be able to hide or try to cover up. We're not going to be able to say, oh, no, don't look there. Oh, I don't want you to look at that part. 
We're not going to be able to say, oh, no, no, Christ, that's embarrassing, that's humiliating. Oh, no, Christ, no, no, no. The writer says, I want you to understand something, fellow Jews. We're going to stand before God. We're going to be on that platform. And we're going to be naked. And as we give an account for our lives, you know what will judge us? The Word of God. And you need to understand something, Jews, about the Word of God. It's alive. And it's effective. It's decisive. And it just lays it all out there in the open. It divides the soul and the spirit. And it discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You know what the Word of God does? It just cuts through all the bull. When we stand before God, he says, you know that exterior? You know that on the outside that, that you know, kind of serves as a covering, that would serve as, as kind of a, a deflection maybe of, of what's really going on inside? He said, I want you to know, you've got to remember this, that as we stand before the Lord... We're going to give an account, and the Word of God, as Christ said, because nothing's changed, the Word of God is going to be what is the judge, and that is what we will be measured against. That will be the standard, and you've got to understand something. The Word of God is not just going to try to get at the heart of things. The Word of God will immediately get to the heart of things. The Word of God isn't just going to try to figure out the heart and try to figure out the motives and try to figure out the thoughts. No, the Word of God is going to cut right through everything that has been our facade. And the Word of God is going to get right to the matters of the heart and of the soul and of the mind. And we will be naked before God. How did the fellow Jews respond to that? Well, I have no idea. But only a fool or an arrogant individual could have read those words and said something like this. Sounds good to me. No big deal here. Because an honest Jew in their day would have known, man, I've got this fault. I've got this flaw. I've got this issue in my heart that I've never really addressed and I've never really dealt with. And, you know, I've got this issue in my soul. And, and man, I've got this motive that, man, it, <laughs> and I don't want God to see that. Hey, it, it's tough. 
God's going to see the heart and the soul. He's going to see the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You just got to know God's going to see it all because God's not messing around when it comes to us standing in front of him. Uh, We'll be naked. One may say that's so embarrassing. Sorry. One may say that's so humiliating. Sorry. That's what the writer said, isn't it? So flip through the pages of Scripture. Start at Genesis 1, read through the final chapter of Revelation. And see where a writer led by the Holy Spirit was led to write anything in contradiction to what we've read tonight. It doesn't exist. So what does it mean? It means this. Uh, Guys, guess what? I know we're not Jews being written to by Jews, but there's a principle here. I'm going to stand before God one day. And whether you like it or not, ever think about it or not, ever dwell upon it or not, don't want to, doesn't matter. Guess what you're going to do one day? You're going to stand before God. And here's what's going to happen. We're going to strip down. And stand before God naked. And what will judge us? What will be the standard by which our life is measured? It will be the Word of God, right? And the Word of God isn't going to mess around with us just like it will not mess around with anyone else. The Word of God is just going to cut through all the garbage. The Word of God is just going to cut through all the bull. And you know what it's going to do? It's just going to divide the soul and the spirit of my life, the soul and the spirit of your life. And it's going to immediately begin discerning the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. And you know what the Lord is going to do? The Lord is going to reveal who we really are. Not as we tried to portray ourselves to everyone else, but He is going to reveal who we really are and who we have really been in our spiritual lives in relation to Him. Christ isn't going to be impressed. God isn't going to be impressed that, well, you came to church. Wow, I don't don't know if I can dig through that. I mean, I guess you were a pretty good guy. You you went to church. No, just cut right through that. Well, I mean, okay, well, I'm looking here and records show that you tithed pretty consistently. Well, okay, you didn't tithe, but you gave. I mean, you gave a pretty good tip. I mean, you know, all things considered, I mean, times were tough. I mean, you had your houses to buy and your cars to buy and, and, and your retirement to set aside for. So I understand you couldn't really tithe, you know, but, but well, let's see if we can get through. It's not going to be like that. Oh, oh I, I let's see. I mean... I, I know you had struggles. Ah, oh, shucks, we all have struggles. I mean, well, I mean, 
goodness, I know you couldn't have had victory because I know the way it was for you growing up and, and I know the way it was for you after you got married and, and life was just so hard for you. Man, I don't know what to say about that. It's not the way it's going to be. Oh, man, you married a loser. Oh, well, I mean, we'll cut you some slack on that one. You didn't have to worry about your heart. You didn't have to worry about your soul. You didn't have to worry about your motives because you married a loser. That's not what it's going to be like. One day I'm going to stand before God. Wide open. And there is nothing cute or funny or snarky about this. It is nothing to make light of. I am going to stand before God naked. And with the power of His Word, He is just going to cut through everything in my life and say, I want to look at your heart. I want to look at your soul. I want to look at your spirit. I want to look at your motives. That's what I'm worried about. I'm not worried about the facade and the exterior that you use to cover up all of your faults and your flaws. I don't know what anybody else's response to that is, but I know what my response to that is. Lord, help. God, I don't want to be on display like that. Because, Lord, that's embarrassing. That's humiliating. But you know what concerns me? We live in a land with almost no sense of shame whatsoever. That's why I can mention people getting naked in the front of the church and people in our church, rather than being appalled by it, they're <laughs> making light of it. We have no shame in our culture today. Which brings me to this point. I wonder how many modern-day Christians, at least living in our culture, I wonder how many look at that day of standing before the Lord thinking, you know, hey, I'll be naked, and they've got an attitude like this. What's well, a big deal? <laughs> Ain't I God's gift? Never mind I still cuss. Never mind I still smoke. Never mind I still drink. Never mind I can't get faithfulness to the house of God down. Never mind I'm still mean to my wife. Never mind I'm still non-submissive to my husband. Never mind we're not raising our kids right. Never mind I don't obey my parents. Never mind I don't ever read the Bible. Never mind I don't pray. Never mind I don't ever share my faith with anyone or try to lead anyone to the Lord or invite anyone to church. Never mind all that. Hey, aren't I doing pretty good? You know what? We live in a culture, it seems like, where we don't have much shame. And it's almost as though we're not smart enough to be scared of that day. Do we want to stand naked before God tonight? I mean, you know what you're really like. 
when you strip the facade of church off of you. Your little public appearance tonight, my little public appearance tonight, we know what we're really like out there. Is that really how we want to stand before God? I'm just telling you. I'm no more excited about standing before God naked than I would be to stand before you all naked. Because I know where my faults are and I know where my flaws are. And if that thought doesn't alarm you just a little bit, you're either arrogant or you're a fool. Such a thought ought to scare us to death. We will be naked one day before God. How are we looking? Let's all stand this evening and bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray that you would use your word tonight to remind us